Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That was really good. That was great. Thank you, guys. Okay, now uh, what we're going to do is we can dismiss the kiddos to the back room. So if you signed in and you've got, you know, children or a puppy dog, as Mike has, uh, feel free to go right back to the, through the foyer. And Milena, and uh, we're going to take our, uh, your kids back there. And we'll go ahead and get started. All right, so let us pray, and we'll get cracking. All right. Heavenly Father, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful for this week. Um, I'm really grateful for the time that I kind of got to explore and dive into this passage tonight. Um, and so, yeah, Father, I just really pray that you would, uh, you would help me to be a trustworthy vessel, that I would just be a nice instrument that you can just play and let all of your skill and your beauty and everything that you are be kind of emanated and communicated here. Uh, just bless the, like, bless the Holy Spirit that all of us would just have ears to hear and be able to kind of understand and grasp what you have for us tonight. And may our knowledge and our perception of mercy just grow tonight, Father. I pray that dearly. I think that's been such a blessing that I've received is that I just feel like my understanding of mercy has just really multiplied, and I pray that you'd do that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the passage, uh, the single passage that we're going to be going off of tonight is the, the 50th verse in chapter one of Luke, which is just like this, because we didn't single it out from the from the song earlier, but it is, and his mercy is for generation after generation to those who fear him. And his mercy is for generation after generation to those who fear him. And so I kind of want to explore uh, a few things. I think there's three kind of interesting key words that that uh, verse has. And I want to try to address all of them, but I also want to try and keep this kind of a flowy, coherent message. And so I'm going to try my darndest with that. Uh, but we're going to spend the majority of our time really focusing on one key concept in this passage. And we're going to explore uh, a concept. It's actually one of the words within that passage there, uh, which I think I've struggled with a lot throughout my life as a believer. Uh, it's a concept that I think has even been um, a little more difficult and like my false understanding of it actually made me feel farther from God rather than closer to him. And the word that we're going to dive into this evening is mercy. 
mercy. I really want to spend as much time as we can here really unpacking this word mercy. And so I think that one of the issues that I had when I came to understanding mercy was I always saw it as like, like kind of, I don't know, here, here's an example. Uh, one of my favorite movies kind of growing up, well, probably my favorite like series is growing up is the Rush Hour series. Really love that. You've got like Jackie Chan with all of his like, you know, he's like a kung fu fighter. He's also like throwing desks at people. And it's like really, really like environmental kung fu. It's really cool. Uh, and then you've got Chris Tucker, who's just like this really loud, abrasive guy who's like really funny and just really, really entertaining. And so it's kind of like this buddy cop action film. And at the very end of the first movie, uh, you've got Chris Tucker, who's a cop, has kind of got the bad guy and he's kind of got the gun pointed on him. And the bad guy's like, whoa, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not armed. Like, please don't just take me like this. Like, have mercy in a sense. And then he's kind of like, oh, you know what? Why don't you put your gun away and we can, like, have one last kung fu battle to, like, really settle things. And Chris Tucker's like, you know, he's kind of a prideful guy. He thinks he can take him. But he's also, you know, he's a human. He's compassionate. He's like, I'm not going to shoot this unarmed guy, even though he deserves it. Blew up all these buildings and stuff like that. And so Chris Tucker's like, all right, all right. And so he takes his gun and he sets it down. And as soon as he does, the bad guy like falls backwards, grabs a gun that's like tucked into his sock and like fires two shots, bow, bow, right at Chris Tucker. And then as that's happening, Chris Tucker falls down because he, he's, he's smarter than he looks, Chris Tucker. He is. He's smarter than he looks. And as he falls down too, he grabs another gun, yeah, in his sock and he sees the guy falling down, so the bad guy shoots high, totally misses. Chris Tucker shoots low, bam, bam. And then, of course, he has some, like, you know, very era-appropriate, like, pithy little one-liner, like, clean yourself up, man. And then that's, like, nearing the end of the movie. But, like, to bring it back, the problem was whenever I saw Mercy, I always saw it like that. I saw it as the bad guy of the movie who had done everything wrong who just doesn't want to reap or, or endure any of the consequences of his actions, just kind of like pleading for the bad guy or for the, for the good guy to not bring down justice. Like mercy in that way always seems like it just had like a really dirty taste in my mouth. I always kind of saw mercy as kind of like this almost plea of self-preservation, like, it was like, God, I know that I'm a bug. I know that I'm terrible. I know how awful I am. But please, if you could find some mercy in yourself, don't squish me like the bug that I truly am. Like, it just always felt kind of, kind of gross. And then on top of that, I struggled with the idea of mercy because it always seems to reinforce this idea that I'm just really, really broken and twisted like, imagine if you have, like, a loving relationship in your life. Let's say it's your, your significant other. Or let's say it's a relative or just a really good friend. Like, imagine if that friend was constantly just referring to themselves as merciful in the context of your relationship. Like, if your best friend was just like, oh, man, I'm a pretty merciful guy hanging out with you. It's like, oh, okay, well, I don't super like you talking about me like that, like that. Seems a little hurtful. Or if, or if your parents were just like, whew, man, we sure are merciful. Like, we are just merciful parents. It's like, ow, man. Like, this kind of seems to reinforce this idea that, like, the person receiving the mercy 
is just kind of a bum, and the person giving the mercy is just kind of doing all this stuff that we don't deserve. I think my problem with mercy was that it always seemed like restraint. It always seemed like this version of restraint. And so I think what I want to do, my goal really, is to kind of expand and increase how we understand this idea of mercy. And I, I think that the real truth that we see even in this very passage is that there's so much beyond restraint and there's so much behind like I'm holding this hammer and I could hit you if I was just but oh I'm not going to but I could just remember that I could like there's so much more to it than that in fact I think that uh and I, and I think maybe I've still just been on this kick because the prince of Egypt is such a darn darn good movie but I think that there's actually a really beautiful example of mercy that we see in the first couple of chapters in Exodus. And it's not one where we're traditionally, you know, thinking of it. So we have, uh, we have the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He kind of decrees this, this law that says that if a Hebrew woman has a baby, if it's a boy, it's thrown into the Nile and drowned. And if it's a girl, you know, they just, they, they, it's, allowed to, it's allowed to live, essentially. My... Uh, but so, so then Moses' mother, of course, gives birth to Moses, and she tries to hide him for as long as she can so that there's no consequences. But eventually, she can't hide the fact that she had this baby boy any longer. And so then, of course, we know the story of he, she kind of puts Moses in this little basket, and she kind of drifts him along the Nile and just kind of prays that he's, he stays safe. Well, it's, it's actually Pharaoh's daughter who discovers... Moses in that basket. And I think to myself, like, if, if Moses' daughter, or I'm sorry, if Pharaoh's daughter wanted to show, like, this kind of passive, like, only restraints version of mercy, then her response would have been, okay, well, you're clearly a Hebrew child, but I'm not going to throw you in this river and drown you, so I'll just, just kind of leave you there, and hopefully someone else will come along and take care of you. But in reality, what we actually see is not this like passive mercy. We actually see this active mercy where she recognizes that the baby's a Hebrew. She calls on one of the Hebrew midwives to nurse Moses until he's healthy. And then she takes care of Moses as if he was her own child. And we know that he was basically raised in Egypt until he runs out into the wilderness at that point in his story. And so this, this kind of idea is, was really groundbreaking for me because it was like this mercy was not just I'm going to keep myself from giving you what you deserve. It wasn't just I'm going to show enough mercy to not toss this child into the river. But it was a mercy that said, no, I'm actually going to take care of you also. I'm going to show you not just mercy and restraint, but I'm going to show you like love and compassion and consideration. See, the problem that we find with uh, English, and, and this is definitely like, uh, you know, a problem that most people don't, 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 uh, don't think about, I would say. But the problem with, like, I'd say reading English Bibles is they don't really grasp a lot of the depth in some of these key biblical terms. 
And I think that at times when we think of a lot of biblical ideas, whether it's mercy, whether it's love, whether it's God, we tend to like tag on these very one-dimensional understandings that sometimes have a lot of baggage from culture, at least more than we would think of. Like even if, you know, the word for God in the, in the Old Testament, there's like, I think a couple dozen names for God in the actual Hebrew, but in the English, we would not, we would not really know that. Mercy is very much the same. There's like eight different words for mercy. And the one that's actually used the most is also like connected with not just mercy, mercy but also compassion. And then I watched this, uh, this video from the Bible Project. I'll go ahead and cite my sources here. That the, the root of the word that we get for mercy is actually the Hebrew word for womb, which implies that the mercy that, that God gives to us, the mercy that God possesses within himself is like very like internal to him. It's very central to him. It says it's as close to the inside, like to the nucleus of God as it can be, like the womb, like it's very close. Another thing I was thinking about throughout this week is that a lot of times when we think of the mercy of God, especially if we're trying to understand how Mary would understand mercy, it's a very maternal characteristic. And I know it gets, it gets weird when we think about like applying different like gender terms to God because we don't want to like impress too much. And I get that, I do. But at the same time, like we serve a God who once spoke of his people and said, could a, could a nursing mother ever forget her child? Like we serve a God who one of his names is El Shaddai, which is literally like the bosom, like the nurturer of his people. And so, you know, I don't think we have to lean into, like, really, uh, you know, maybe unhealthy interpretations of the being of who God is to recognize that there are some really beautiful, like, maternal, like, caring mother-esque traits that God has, that God uses himself to describe how he cares for his people. I think that's really really wonderful. Because see, I often think that, and I, I mean, this we, we could go into this for a long time, but I think it's pretty common, and maybe this isn't everyone, but a lot of us tend to associate something to God and our understanding of him from our earthly fathers. And sometimes that can work in positive ways, and sometimes it can also work in negative ways. I was actually having a really wonderful conversation with a couple friends of mine a few nights ago, and they kind of concluded that they tend to associate all of the worst attributes of their fathers to God, whether it's distance or whether it's perpetual disappointment or whatever that may be. And so I realized that one of the reasons mercy was like this stunted concept for me was because I attached my, oh, my understanding of my dad's mercy to me, which was always just restraint. Like it wasn't compassion. It wasn't like care. It was just like, all right, um, you did something wrong and I'm not going to punish you, but I can't say I'm super happy about this. 
And that's not a shot against my dad by any means. I think he did a lot of things really, really wonderfully. But again, like, in what ways are we allowing certain maybe experiences to alter just how loving we consider God to be? Because again, we recognize that a lot of things are going to affect how we view God. But what's interesting about Mary is that she inherited this story from all of Israel where they had so many experiences and so many writings to think like this is actually how we should, we should understand God instead. So there's this notion of mercy that mercy is not just, I'm not going to punish you for this thing, but mercy is something that is deep within the center of God. And so when we plead for mercy, we're not pleading that we wouldn't be hurt or that we wouldn't be punished for something, but we're actually praying that God himself, his, his fullness, would draw closer to us. In the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, I don't know, maybe a couple of you guys are familiar with this, they have uh, this, this meditative prayer that they've used for centuries called the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus prayer is, is very biblical. It's literally taken right from, uh, from the publican's prayer in one of Jesus' parables or stories. And it, it just goes like this, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would just repeat it to themselves over and over, kind of like in the same way that a Roman Catholic would pray through the rosary. They would just pray this, this prayer over and over again, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as they're praying it over and over and over again, they're like thinking of each word and almost breaking each thing down. Jesus being magnified, the Christ being magnified. Have mercy being magnified on me. Like all of these things, they're just kind of praying through them and unfolding them and unpacking each of these phrases. And for me, I mean, I, I read about the Jesus prayer a while ago, but I always saw it as like this distancing thing because it seemed to focus on mercy. But when I, when I, uh, I watched this video about someone who actually really enjoyed and found the Jesus prayer to be very meaningful and impactful, they said this, when we pray the Jesus prayer, we are continually placing before our intellect the divine physician who loves us. We're continually placing before our intellect the divine physician who loves us. And so there's this way of understanding mercy as not just a trait of action, but a trait of heart, a trait of identity. Like we see God's identity in his mercy. When we are pleading to him for mercy, we're not just saying, God, don't hit me, don't hit me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But we're actually saying, God, like, I recognize that within myself, I am an empty shell. God, I am, a, I am a, an empty, reaching, grasping hand. Please be what I need. Please meet me where I am. Please show me yourself. That is what is found so deeply and so richly within God's mercy. I have a point here that I, yeah, whatever, I'll just go for it. So 
one there I I one thing I find really that I love very deeply about my my family is that especially specifically my dad's side of the family. Again, no shade to my mom, you know, in case you're there, mom, love you. Uh, but there's something within my dad's family culture. And, I, and I, honestly, I think this is really common within just like African-American culture as a whole. But there's a strong tendency to not see like the experience of an individual as entirely individualized, but it's as one part of a larger collective. Like I spent... Uh, Thanksgiving with my family up in Detroit, and we had this time, which I'm sure many of you guys may see may, or find common, where before dinner, we kind of circle up, and before, you know, whoever's the pastor in the family does the prayer, which actually wasn't me, which is kind of cool. Uh, everyone goes around and says what they're thankful for. Uh, and I actually got roasted by my older sister because I was like, hey, you know, I'm grateful for food. Yeah, because I didn't recognize just how deep this whole experience was about to get. It took probably, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes for all of us to get into it. And it's because we were, it was like this deep, like prayerful experience for all of us. Because saying, like, oh, we're grateful wasn't just like, oh, we're grateful for so-and-so spending all this time in the kitchen for this great-looking potato salad. Like, it was, like, exploring, like, God has been so good to us. And it wasn't individualized. Like, I love that. It wasn't, in this year, God has been really, really good to me. It was as a family, as the Simons, as the Johnsons, as those of us who came from, from, the, from the Egypt that was Lake Charles and have arrived in the various promised lands of Tucson and Detroit, Michigan, and Pittsburgh, as all of us have come together in this past year, God has been so good to us. In our sickness, in our health, God has delivered us. God has taken care of us. He's walked with us through so many things. Not just God has been good to me, but God has been good to us as a family. God has been so richly good to us. And I, I, I bring that out because Mary mentions like from generation to generation is where we find God's mercy. And I point it out too because I think oftentimes when we think of God and his dealings with us, we, we tend to individualize the heck out of it. Well, let's see, how good has God been to me since I started following him 10 years ago after that great youth conference in high school? Like, it's like the experience of God starts with our first experience with him, and then it ends, I don't know, when we die, or maybe goes on forever into heaven. But there's no, there's no concept of inheriting something larger than us. And I see a glimpse of that in my family. And I see a larger glimpse of that in Mary as she's talking through this. Because Mary's fully aware that her experience with God did not start when the angel just showed up and was like, hey, you're going to have a baby and there's more. Like, it was, she was aware that as, as a daughter of Israel, as a daughter of Abraham, she was inheriting this enormous story that started all the way back with Abraham and had gone on generation after generation. And so when she looked at the mercy of God, she didn't see it as starting with when she 
gain consciousness of how good God was. She saw the mercy of God as something that her and her parents and her parents' parents and her parents' parents' parents, all the way down for hundreds of years, for all these generations, that was the story that she was inheriting. Something so much bigger than just herself. And guys, that's something that we, I think we miss so often when we think about God. And, and I mean, you know, this is a very American culture thing. We're all individuals. We don't wave to our neighbors. We just spend all this time by ourselves, yada, yada. But like, when we're Christians, we are inheriting this story where we are living within the story of God brought into the people of God. Like our story does not start when we tell Jesus, yeah, you can definitely show up in my life if you want to. Our story has started so much farther, so much earlier than us. And yet God doesn't see us as like one of like a hundred kids and he can barely remember our names. He's still really loving and deeply intimate with us. But we're not just like these one figures. Every star is like forming a galaxy and God doesn't just love us as if we're separate from everything else. We're brought into a family full of brothers and sisters. The church, this giant nation, it's, it's really, really wonderful. And so uh, as, we, as we continue to maybe maybe our clothes, you guys might be thinking to yourselves, well, John, I noticed you uh, didn't mention that fear thing, huh? Trying to dodge it, trying to dodge the, t- dodge the tough part of the sermon, John? Well, hold on, hold on. I got a couple quick, quick points here, because you're right, you're absolutely right. There is this interesting kind of condition in this passage here, saying that God is giving mercy generation to generation, but to those who fear him. So let's talk a little bit about fear. I would love to. Thank you for asking. So there there is uh, a, a perspective about fear, about God's fear, that's very, like, kind of dismissive. It's like, oh, you know, fear is like a King James word. It's like a dated word. I wouldn't say that you're supposed to fear God. I think it's like respect, and I would say that's, that's not really right. Because when we look, not even just Old Testament, but also New Testament, fear is present both in command and in experience. We see the prophets in the Old Testament said, fear God. And then we see Jesus in the New Testament, and he says, fear God. And then we look at Isaiah who was a prophet of God, and he had this experience of God, and he was petrified. He was horrified at what he saw because God was so big and incredible for him to behold. And then turn your Bible to the back, and we see the apostle John, like Jesus's favorite disciple. John has this image of God, and he again just struck down just completely, like not even in awe. We can be in awe of the Grand Canyon, and that's a hole in the ground. This is the creator of everything. And John was once again struck down by it. So the question is why? 
It's be, really, I mean, the answer, which is a lousy answer, but I'll start with it, is because he's God. Because he is the creator, because he is the most high, he is the one who has no start or end to him. I mean, honestly, like, if you talk to a philosophy major about the cons, the philosophical concept of eternity, they've just, they just give up on it. Like, how do you comprehend something that has no beginning and no end? Everything has a beginning and an end. Every empire, every uh, season, every plant that you try to keep healthy in your house, everything has a beginning and an end, but God defies everything that we could use to define something. And in a way, I think that makes him more compelling, that God is consistently not this thing that we can put into a Petri dish and slide under our microscope and just examine and point out all of these things. That God has persistently presented himself as someone who is not to be observed fully, who is not to be understood fully either. He's not tolerable. I remember when, uh, when Moses was like having all these beautiful, enriching conversations with God, and he, Moses was like, why don't you just come down here, and we can just talk face to face? Which I'm sure in Moses' mind, maybe he was thinking, because Adam used to do that, right? What was God's response? Yeah, if I do that, you're going to die. Like, if I, if I come down and we just, you know, start talking about how great the view is from Mount Sinai and you know, how, uh, how tasty the hummus was last night. Like, you'll just die. Because in this state that you're in, with the sin and the way that it's infected your DNA and your mind and everything else, you won't be able to handle me as God. And so when we think of Mary, again, I've used this phrase, inheriting the story of Israel. When we think about Mary... She knew about the fear of God because she remembered all of her people talking about God being this booming voice from the top of a mountain. She knew the fear of God because she knew of God being that flaming pillar of fire that existed in the night and that big cloud that existed during the day. She knew of God's wrath. She knew of God's anger. She knew of God's terrifying presence. And so she inherited all of that. And we see that this God is very, very fearful. But in this same way, this same God, this bright, lovely, but horrifying being, this guy who created the galaxy and yet in a single motion could swallow it all out of existence, this God became a little baby, and that's mercy. This, like, incredible, terrible, frightening, holy, whew, that's a weighty word to use. This God became a little baby. That's mercy. That is mercy. Now, the thing about the relationship between fear and mercy is that you can't have one without the other. And I, I, I want to explain, like, fear 
as we come to conceive it, tends to be a very isolating term. When we think of something that we fear, it doesn't come across as accessible. Something that we fear is usually too much, and so we distance ourselves from it. Whether we fear public speaking or whether we fear spiders or walking into dark bedrooms, like something that we fear, we usually push ourselves away from, and we say, it's not meant it's for me, it's meant to go over here. And that's the type of fear that I think we should fly from. Because when we truly think of fear in the way that God is presenting it to us, fear is truly an understanding of both God and self. It's an understanding that God is grand and perfect and infinite. And I am small and limited and flawed. Fear is the natural recognition that God is so many things that I am not, and yet God is also the thing that we deeply, deeply need. And so when we say fear God, and like I know there are people who use the fear of God like this weapon and say, fear God, quiver, shake, tremble at the awe of God. Yeah, I mean, hey, Sometimes you have to do that because that's what brings your pride back to the humility where it's supposed to be. But if we're fearing God in this way that makes him seem like this dictator and this tyrant, that's not the type of fear that God is calling us into. The problem that the Israelites had was that they had no understanding of fear. Or I would say they had no obedience towards fear. And so their lack of fear just led them into all kinds of disobedience, all kinds of fighting and pushing against God and worshiping all of these other gods that were truly false gods. It's like uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia, that very famous quote about the lion who everyone knows is kind of the picture of Jesus Aslan. That quote is, is he safe? No, he's not, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what we need from God. We don't get a safe God. We get a God who is, again, more than we can understand, more than we could tolerate, more than we could observe or feel or sense. But he's good. He's actually really good. And when we recognize that, when we recognize that and our need for him, then the mercy just floods us. And so I do have to ask, like, for, for anyone present, and I, I do, I kind of want to narrow the scope just a little bit here when we're talking. I'm sure there may be someone here who is just kind of in this state of, like, I, I, I'm trying, I'm grasping for God, but I don't fear him, whether it's a, a, a willful like desire to not fear him, or maybe there's just so much fear in you that you don't even know what it would look like to give God that. And I would just say, like, like I think there's so much happening right now in the world. I think we're, we are, our culture is at an all-time high understanding of the fragility of humanity. Like, our mental health is just collapsing all around us. Like, social media gave everybody anxiety and depression, and we legitimately struggle with that in, like, awful ways. 
We're understanding the effects of trauma, both capital T and lowercase t, and just how it affects us in so many ways. Our our limitations are so clear and they're so present to us. My question is, guys, the way to finish that, the way to, to cross the bridge from suffering alone and asking God to fill that for us is just recognizing, hey, my limitations are not something that God is incapable of filling. We know how limited we are. We know how broken we are. We know how much we tend to self-sabotage. Like, recognize the other side of the coin. We recognize that God is so great and capable of meeting us here. It can be scary, sure. God's scary sometimes. But it's only because sometimes we're just not capable of understanding how wonderful he is on top of that. So consider that. There's this passage in Nehemiah I want to read before we close. I know I said that a while ago, but that was just bait. I, meant, I mean it this time. There's this passage in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this really cool book about uh, kind of the, a, a portion of Israel traveling back to Jerusalem after they'd been in exile for a really long time. It says in chapter 9 that uh, a few of them, well, actually not a few, a, a large sum of them got together as they were gathering back in the promised land. After being gone for generations, this is a really, really big deal. They got back together and it says for one-fourth of the day, which I'm going to imagine is between three and six hours, for one-fourth of the day, they read through the law and then for another fourth of the day, they sat and they confessed their sins and they worshiped God. And in that confession, they said this, after going through all of the lousy things that Israel had done, all of the ways that they disobeyed, looked to other gods, self-sabotaged, all these things, they looked to God and said, yet in your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. Guys, I, the, last, the last thing, and this won't even be a full point, this is like a mini point, is that God's mercy is always accompanied by his presence. When God shows us great mercy, he is coming to us, and he is uniting with us, and he is meeting us where we are. And that's perfect, because we'll, we'll transition right from this into the Lord's Supper, The Lord's Supper is this beautiful thing that churches have been doing for 2,000 years where we intentionally come and dine with Jesus. As I remember, I used to work at this residential facility where uh, kids would come up and they'd, these were kids typically had like behavioral issues and so most of them had like medications they would take. So every morning at 7.30, we'd wake the kids up, we'd line them up outside this door Uh, We'd have their medications in these little, like, plastic cups. They'd come up, say their name, date of birth, John Simon, 812-92, take their pills, take some water, walk back to the rec room. And I'm just like, when we take the Lord's Supper, can we vow to never do it like that? Just standing in a line, waiting for the next person, waiting for the next person, take the bread, (laughs) take the wine, sit back down, 
Think about what's for dinner. Hope it's EG's. What's, what's for work tomorrow? Like, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's like very intentionally just recognize kind of this same thing we've been talking about, this, this blend of fear and mercy, that we, when we take the Lord's Supper with this bread and with this wine, no, we're not Catholic. We don't believe the bread is actually flesh. We don't believe the wine is actually blood. But what we do believe is that we are getting a glimpse, just this tiny, tiny, tiny little glimpse of what it will actually mean to sit across the table from our risen Savior and spend time with him. So when we come up and do that, let's not just head back to our seats. Let's be as as honest as we can when we meet with Jesus. Let's be as honest as we can. And a big part of honesty is, uh, is confession, which is how we're going to go right now. And so there's a lot to, to think through. You know, this was a, this was a loaded, meaty, very uh, Thanksgiving dinnery sermon. There's a lot to pick from here. But uh, I would just encourage you what we're going to do right now. We're going to take two minutes, complete silence, and we're just going to pray. We're going to pray to God, and we're going to confess to him whatever sins, whatever, whatever problems we may be thinking through that are on our hearts right now. And it can be easy to think like, but John, if we're trying to have the joy of meeting with Jesus, then why are we starting by, by pouring contempt on ourselves? I would say we're not. We confess our sins to Jesus because we know that we can faithfully rely that his response will be love and forgiveness. So whatever it is that's on your heart, whatever it is that may have been brewing there, whether it's from this morning, whether it's from yesterday, whether it's from years ago that you never had the chance to bring before Jesus, bring it up now. You got a couple minutes. You can take longer. But let's, uh, let's confess. Father in heaven, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for you, Lord. I'm grateful for the beautiful mercy and just you, like... <laughs> The beauty of mercy is that you're the one who's behind it. It's not just this empty trait. It's not just this empty, you know, worthless thing that you hold in your hand. Within your mercy is you, and you are the one that we need. But Father, we recognize that as we see you, we also see ourselves, and we've got spots and blemishes and dirt under our fingernails. We, we are flawed we do things we shouldn't. We say things we shouldn't. We think things we shouldn't. We need to confess. So, Father, whether we confess that we haven't drawn close to you, whether we confess that we have been unkind to people around us, maybe we have to confess that we had a fight with someone and we were actually really selfish. Maybe we confess that we've been gossiping about someone behind their back. But may we confess and do so honestly and then feel the joy of knowing that we're forgiven for all of our sins.